Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming out on this much cooler night. Is this nice? Okay, our text uh, this morning, or this evening, it's nighttime, dark, we're not preaching in the early morning hours. Um, our text this evening is uh, Jeremiah 18. Uh, we're going to read from there very soon, so um, please get that in front of you. Um, we're going to look at a prophetic message uh, delivered by Jeremiah to a people who were uh, growing increasingly hard-hearted. Uh, the people of Judah were, um, they're going to serve us tonight. Um, as God holds them up uh, before us as a picture of what we as a church and each of us individually uh, can become if we uh, try to glide through the Christian life without putting much effort into this at all. Um, the Christian life is like uh, an uphill journey. Uh, it's like what your, your grandpa told you about his, his walk to school every morning uh, when he was a kid. It was uphill, uh, and it was uphill on the way home as well. Um, it's, it's harder than that, though. It's harder than grandpa's walk because it's like a long walk up a sand-covered mountain, not even just a hill, a high mountain covered with sand. Uh, the hill's steep. Uh, the sand is such that if you uh, keep moving, if you keep propelling yourself upward, uh, you'll make some way. But if you stop, you'll just begin to slowly slide down the hill. Um, the people of Judah have been drifting down that sand hill uh, and away from God for many years. Uh, we have the benefit of getting God's perspective on their lives from this wonderfully um, safe and uh, wonderful view here on the other side of the cross of Christ. Um, so um, here's my hope uh, for this message for us this evening. Uh, I hope that the Spirit will, um, will use this message to draw you into a, a deeper and more abiding devotion and submission to God as the trustworthy master of your lives. Uh, the message is a, a basic message in the Christian life, uh, but we need to be reminded of it repeatedly because we often fail to keep moving up that sand hill toward holiness, and we begin to drift back downward toward hard-heartedness. And we can do this in many ways. Uh, we might grow weary of the, the long, hard fight against the currents of our uh, sinful hearts. Uh, besetting sins, they, they frustrate us. They beat us down, cause us to lose hope in the transforming effect of the gospel of Christ Jesus. Uh, we can grow impatient uh, with our growth in Christ-likeness. Uh, holiness seems elusive. We're ever striving, but seem never to be arriving at the goal we haven't made the progress in righteous living that we had hoped we would make by now. Uh, or we may be lulled into a dangerous, sleepy coexistence with our sinful selves. Um, the enemy of our souls uh, distracts us with um, pursuit, distracts us from the pursuit of holiness with, with the many allures that are in this world. And he slowly blinds us to the destructiveness of our sin and, and creates an insensitivity to uh, its pain in our lives. 
So for many reasons other than these, we need to hear God's message through Jeremiah tonight. So let's read Jeremiah 18. And we are going to read the first 18 verses of Jeremiah 18. It would have been better if I had already marked that page. Oh, there it is. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck it up, break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare it concerning a nation or kingdom that I will build it and plant it, and it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good I had intended to do to it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. But they say, That is vain. We will follow our own plans and will act according to the stubbornness of our of his evil each to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Ask among the nations, who has heard the like of this? The virgin Israel has done a very horrible thing. Does the snow of Lebanon leave the crags of Syrian? Do the mountain waters run dry the cold flowing streams? But my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false gods. They made them stumble in the ways, in the ancient roads, and to walk into side roads, not the highway making their land a horror, a thing to be hissed at forever. Everyone who passes by it is horrified and shakes his head. Like the east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back, not my face, in the day of their calamity. Then they said, come, let us make plots against Jeremiah. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come, let us strike him with the tongue, and let us not pay attention to any of his words. Let's pray for ourselves. Father, we ask, Lord God, in the name of Jesus, that you would, that you would grant us, supernaturally grant us a humility to submit ourselves to your word this evening to submit ourselves to your desires for our lives, to your instruction, Lord God, that is for our good and for your glory. Lord God, let us hear your voice, Lord, and that your word would go out and perform the purpose 
you intend for it to do. Would you do this, Father? Disciple us, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. Okay, so here's uh, what I want to say uh, to you and for you to keep in mind uh, as we move through this sermon. Uh, The divine potter's call to Judah to return is a clear call to Christ's church to continual and lifelong repentance. I'll say that again. There's no screen upon which you can see it. Uh, So again, the divine potter's call to Judah to return is a clear call to Christ's church to continual and lifelong repentance. God is reminding us that the pathway to holiness runs through repentance. So three points that we're going to hit. God calls Judah to return. God calls Christ's church to continual lifelong repentance. And lastly, God provides power for continual lifelong repentance. So the first point, God calls Judah to return. At the center of the message is God's call to Judah to return in verse 11. But God takes a particular course to get to that very clear call to his people. So we're going to follow along with God's thoughts here. Uh, God starts the message off with a prophetic object lesson. In verse 2, he says to Jeremiah, Arise and go down to the potter's house. So Jeremiah goes down, and then he describes seeing the potter at his wheel. Uh, The potter is throwing a clay vessel. Uh, Then in the middle of shaping it, the potter sees something that he doesn't like. The clay is not responding rightly to his touch. So he pounds it down again into a lump and starts over. He begins to shape it into a, a different sort of vessel, seemingly something that in the potter's mind is more appropriate to the nature of the clay. Then the Lord brings, uh, after the object lesson, uh, a message from it to the hearts of his hearers in verse 6. He says, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So here's the point of this prophetic object lesson in the words that followed. The divine potter has the sovereign right to make the clay into anything he desires, even to change his mind about what he will form that clay into. That seems like a rather elementary lesson. Uh, The potter doesn't need counsel from anyone about what to do with the clay, and especially not from the clay itself. Clay vessels don't have a say in what uh, shape they're made into or how the potter uses them. The potter is the sovereign creator. The clay is merely the creation. In this case, it's simply an inanimate object. It cannot decide what it is. So why is this elementary lesson necessary for Judah to see in this picture and to consider? Well, the, the people of Judah seem to be mistaken about God's purpose in choosing them as his covenant people. They seem to think that his purpose is to provide for their pleasure, when in fact God's purpose is in relating to them is to bring glory, great glory, to himself. God's people seem to have forgotten that God is very willing to use painful discipline 
as a means to bring them into loving and joyful obedience to him. Their unrepentant condition demonstrates uh, their false assumption that they have the right to rule themselves. And now these are all things that from moment to moment, day to day, we all fall into thinking as well. The potter clay object lesson is meant to correct those mistakes, those mistaken ideas in them and in us. Then in verses 7 through 10, God very carefully explains his sovereign rights as the potter over the clay. Essentially, God says that he can make known his intentions to bless or to curse a people, and that if the people change their course, God will change his plans for them. Just like he had done earlier in Nineveh, God can plan, declare his plan to pluck up, break down, destroy a nation or a people. And if they respond to his call to put off their sinful ways and to obey him, he'll relent of the disaster that he intended to bring to them. Likewise, the divine potter's declaration to build up and to plant a nation and its people is also alterable. It can be changed. This is a situation in which the, the people of Israel have been in ever since God uh, brought them out of slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. In Deuteronomy 28, God very clearly laid out for Israel the blessings they'd receive for walking in obedience to him and the curses they'd receive for their disobedience to him. So is God being capricious? Is he simply changing the rules in, in the middle of the game in order to suit himself? And the answer is absolutely not. No, he's not doing this at all. Then what accounts for God's change of plans? We need to understand that God is always true to himself. The sovereign Lord's plans and his change of plans are always in keeping with his holiness, with his justice, with his character. In fact, God's character and the integrity of his character, it's the same through and through, guarantees that he will embrace everyone who willingly and lovingly submits to him as Lord. And he will discipline and eventually punish everyone who spurns his authority and walks as their own master. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it. Uh, Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The point is, God does not change in any way, but he will always change his plans so that they stay in accord with his character. Which brings us to the direct call of God on the people of Judah in verse 11, where he says, it says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. Now we see uh, God reveal his perspective on these people, the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem. They had been the people to whom God had said, I will build you, I will plant you. 
Now they're the people against whom he's saying, I'm shaping disaster against you. But, but our merciful God holds out hope for these people in the form of a call. Return everyone from his evil way. Return to your prior state of blessed, being blessed when you were willingly walking according to my plan and my pleasures for you. Return to it, which brings us to our second point. Second point, God calls Christ's church to continual and lifelong repentance. Let's first get square in our mind uh, what repentance is. Uh, We can use Jeremiah 18 to get started. Uh, The divine potter's message to Judah is return and amend. Return from your evil way. Decide in your heart that worshiping lesser things, wealth, success, sensual pleasures, ease, romantic relationships, whatever it is, it's all an offense to the only true God who deserves our constant and eternal praise. Give it all up, God is saying. And then, amend your ways and your deeds. Don't just put off your idolatry and your sin. Put on the righteous ways of the only man who obeyed and submitted to the Father, to Christ Jesus, who did this perfectly, constantly, and eternally. Uh, In a wonderful book, uh, Rediscovering Holiness, J.I. Packer defines repentance as altering one's habits of thought, one's attitudes, outlook, policy, direction, and behavior, just as fully as is needed to get one's life out of the wrong shape and into the right one. Repentance is nothing short of a spiritual revolution. Christ's redeemed people ought to be working with the Spirit's power to complete the spiritual revolution that God has in mind for Judah and for us. Packer goes on to describe the components of biblical repentance by using an alliterative uh, double R's, two words starting with R. So the first component of biblical repentance is a realistic recognition of our sin against God. In true repentance, God, God's spirit prevails over our self-deception and brings us to conviction of sin, that we've failed to bring glory to God. And we need to have this in order to rightly, to re- rightly repent. Uh, secondly, um, godly repentance includes regretful remorse. Regretful remorse that we have dishonored the God whom we ought to be loving and cherishing, whom we're growing in love for and cherishing of. Packer rightly says that contrite remorse for sin springs, quote, from the sense of having outraged God's goodness and love. It's our sin against a holy God that makes our sin outrageous. It's our sin against a holy God that makes this so deplorable, regretful remorse. Thirdly, uh, biblical repentance should have reverent requesting of God's pardon, of God's cleansing, for God's help, 
Godly repentance cries out, repentance cries out to God, the only one who can fix us. So godly repentance goes to the source of our help. Fourthly, um, biblical repentance, resolute renunciation of the particular sin that you've committed and for which you're convicted. This is the change of direction that uh, is at the heart of biblical repentance. Resolute renunciation says, this evil thing, this evil against my loving Lord, um, this is evil, I'm sorry, uh, says this is evil, this sin of mine, against my loving Lord, and I will, I'll make plans to stay away from this, to go here no more. So we not only say we will not do it, we work at not doing this. And requisite restitution is the last one. Requisite restitution is made to anyone who has suffered harm because of our sin. The Spirit leads the penitent heart to not simply renounce sin, but to undo sin's harm in others as well as we are able to do this. At the least, requisite restitution will include going to them, going to the spouse, to the child, to the friend, to the co-worker that you've sinned against, and asking them to forgive you, confessing your sin to them, telling them that you, you wish not to have done that and you are going to work not to have done that again, and that you're asking God to help you and asking for their forgiveness. So now that we put some form and substance to repentance, let's go back to the text. Um, how is the call to Judah uh, a call to continual, lifelong repentance? Why should they have heard it this way? And why should we apply it to our lives in this manner? Remember, Jeremiah is speaking to God's people. In this case, to the men and women of Judah and Jerusalem. These are his chosen covenant people. They are the recipients of God's covenant with Abraham, that he would be their God and that they would be his people, that these descendants would be numerous, more than the sand grains and the, at the beach and, and, and the stars of the heavens, and, and that they would be given a land by him. They're the recipients of God's covenant through Moses, that if they obey God's laws, he will be present with them and he'll bless them. Judah, along with Israel, enjoyed many periods of God's blessings as they lived rightly before him. The point is that Judah is already in a grace-filled relationship with God. The repentance that God calls them to will not initiate a relationship with him. They're already in this relationship with him. But this repentance will bring about the continuation of their blessed relationship with their God. So God's message through Jeremiah is a call to Judah to return to what they have been doing in the past and to what they should continue to do all their days on this earth. When they return to grateful and loving submission to their Savior, they will need to repent of sin daily so that they don't again become a nation that God intends to destroy because of unrepentant hearts. So you see, this relationship already is. What they should have been doing all along is repenting day by day of sin. Judah, just as Judah needed to continually 
repent before God for each sin that each of these people committed, so do we. Each of us needs to hear and follow God's call to day by day and hour by hour repentance for our sin. But how do we do this? How, uh, where can we find the strength to walk this out? So we're on the last point. God provides power for continual lifelong repentance. Most of you know exactly how this story turns out for the people of Judah and Jerusalem. They've spiraled so deep into the abyss of sin that God describes Judah as a people who puff out their chests and defy God. The prophetic, the prophetic word itself uh, portrays these people as saying, that is vain, this word that Jeremiah has spoken. We will follow our own plans. We will act, every one of us, according to the stubbornness of our evil heart. And God is not exaggerating in putting those words into their mouths. Jeremiah records their actual response. Verse 18, then they said, come, let us make plots against Jeremiah. Come, let us strike him with the tongue and let us not pay any attention to his words. The divinely inspired message to them is altogether completely useless. And let's, let's kill the messenger as well. I mean, this is serious unrepentance. Judah's rebellion is appalling to the Lord. And the divine analysis that he makes of their response in verses 13 to 15, it's very pointed. Their, their hard-hearted rebellion, he says, is unprecedented. The surrounding nations are more faithful to carved idols than Judah is to the one true God who delivered them from Egypt, who gave them good kings, who established them in the land, who made them plentiful, who protected them from the enemies. God says Judah's unrepentance is contrary to the nature of things. To ditch their relationship with God is as unnatural as the snow disappearing from the top of Mount Everest. This just does not happen. It's against the nature of things for this to go on. Ultimately, God judges their refusal to return to him as a very horrible thing. It should have horrified them that they would speak these words, that they would even think such a thing should have horrified them, but it didn't. They were fine with this. And then despite this ugly rebellion, God still demonstrates his love toward them. He brings them uh, upon them discipline that is meant to create the repentance that he demands. As a result of their stubborn unrepentance, they will see God's back instead of his face when Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Babylon's king, attacks Jerusalem and takes them captive to his land. Rather than come to their rescue, as God has done so many times, he's going to depart from them and they'll see his back. So the question becomes, if God's old covenant people couldn't walk out this life of continual repentance, 
Why can we expect to do better, any better than they did? Well, we can confidently expect our lives to be marked by grace-fueled repentance because we have Christ. The failure of Judah to repent of their sins was meant to point us to the Savior, Jesus. Jeremiah does this himself when he speaks God's word uh, in chapter 31, in verse 31, in verse 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them and I'll write it upon their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is the same new covenant inaugurated by Jesus Christ on the cross. The Savior said as much when he gave his disciples the ordinance of communion. And he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The spilling of Jesus' blood on the cross as he died in our place for our sins established the new covenant in which all gospel believers walk. We walk in this in faith in Christ Jesus. God-pleasing, holiness-building, continual repentance is only possible by placing your faith in Jesus' Jesus' death in your place for your sins. In order to say this, I really need to uh, point out that there, there are two occasions for repentance. The first occasion is when we enter the kingdom of God. Repentance and faith are the entryway into God's kingdom. Jesus said this in in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. He said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. When we uh, talk of being converted to Christ, we're describing the human act of turning away from one's life of sin, which is repentance, and turning toward Christ in faith. Faith and repentance go together. Once we enter Christ's, uh, God's kingdom through conversion, we encounter the reality that we continue to sin. Any Christian who's lived even a day after their conversion knows this. This would be a depressing thought if we didn't also know and remind ourselves that God has once for all legally declared us righteous because of our faith in Christ's death in our place. We are given the righteousness of Christ. He declares that for us. It is a a forever transaction when you place your faith in Christ's work. At that moment, the dominating power of sin over you is broken and the spirit is within you to empower your battle against sin. The result should be that your life will be marked by a progressive growth in Christ-likeness. You're going to become like him ever more, day by day. And this brings us to the second occasion for repentance, which is whenever we sin after conversion. We sin daily, so we need to repent in faith daily as well. 
This is the only way that we can successfully obey God's commands to unlearn our sinful ways of life and to take on the righteousness that marks the life of Christ Jesus. Daily repentance of sin is necessary to put to death the deeds of the body, Romans 8.13. Daily repentance of sin is the only way that we can obey Paul's command to let not sin reign in your mortal body, Romans 6.12. Regular and contrite repentance is necessary to present your members to righteousness leading to sanctification, Romans 6.19. And here's the key. Here's the key to faithfully persevering and learning and growing in this life of repentance. Paul writes in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's the repent, grow in, in Christ-likeness, be more and more like him. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The only reason that we can repent of sin daily with the hope of increased future holiness is that God is at work in us. There is no other way for us to get this done. Church, God is at work in each of you. So be humble and repent of sin often, repeatedly, continually, day by day. Let's go ahead and have the uh, worship team get ready to lead us in another song of praise as I close things up. Friends, one final word about repentance. Um, as Christians, we must continually repent because we continue to sin. But we must not lean on repentance as though it were the basis for our salvation. This can be a mistake we make as we, as we uh, have been saved through faith in Christ. We begin to work to be more and more like him and we start to confuse what it is that brings about our salvation. You were saved by God's grace through faith in Christ's redemptive work on the cross. Your ongoing repentance is simply the fruit of that grace-filled work of God in your heart. So church, hear God's call through Jeremiah. This is what God is saying to us. Return to me day by day, hour by hour, each time sin invades your life. Return to my plans and my purposes for your lives. Be the malleable clay that submits to my hands. The clay that willingly, eagerly, joyfully moves in the direction of holiness to which my hands directed. I instruct you in my word, God says. I give you the perfect example. I gave you the perfect example of Jesus. I convict you of wrong by the Holy Spirit. I lead you in repentance. I delivered you. I deliver you through the cross of Christ in order to maximize your joy and your satisfaction in me and to prepare you for perfection in eternity before me. 
So brothers and sisters, please embrace this life of constant repentance. Let your repeated turning to God, to Christ, shine as your fruit, the fruit of your faith, your faith in his cleansing work on the cross. Let your sorrow over sin and your contrite return to the Lord, to God's good path. Let it exercise your soul in humility as you apply the gospel of Christ to your lives yet again. Watch as the Spirit-empowered repentance and faith destroy your old sinful ways and replace them with the righteous, glorious works of Christ, the perfect, loving, obedient Son of the Father on high. Let's pray. Father, Father God, I pray, Lord God, that you would create in each of us a desperation for you to move in this way in our hearts, Lord. None of us, none of us is as aware of our sin as we ought to be. None of us is as repentant as we should be. None of us as contrite each and every time as we should be, as remorseful over our sin, Lord God. Would you please, please, Father, by the work of your Spirit, make this real in our hearts. Father God, make sin abhorrent to us, Lord God. Make it sinfully ugly to us, Father God. Lord God, I pray, Father, that you would create in us a hatred for our own sin, Lord God, and that you would create in us, Lord God, a, a deep and abiding desire, Lord, to, to put to death sin in our bodies, to put it to death by humble repentance over and over again, Lord. And I pray, Father God, that you would that you would make for us, even with besetting sins, sins that are repeated in our lives over and over again, Father, would you make it obvious that we are growing through this godly repentance that you have given to us? That the episodes grow longer between. That each episode, Lord God, be be less, less intense than the last, Lord God. And that we can see it, that those around us can see it, Father God. I pray, Father, that you would have us grow in Christ's likeness, Lord God, as you make us aware of our sin and you, by your Spirit, enable us to properly repent. And Lord God, let those around us, those who are most often uh, injured by our sin, Lord God, let them see this work as well and be encouraged by what is going on, Lord God. Let us encourage one another, spur one another on, Lord God, into this wonderful work for you, are at work in us. That is our confidence. Christ is at work in us to purify us, Lord God. Thank you, Lord. Amen.